In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Betches Media presents... Madam Speaker... Madam Vice President. You want to hang out with us? You get your vaccine. Vaccine, vaccine. And so I went to Human Resources. There are some things I just can't tell you uh, on air. The Betches Sub Podcast. A woman's problem, if you will. Hello, and welcome to the Betches Sub Podcast. I'm Sammy Sage, and today I am joined by actually a very uh, special guest, for me at least. He is my former college professor, Professor Lee Adler, who teaches and lectures at the School of Industrial and Labor Relations. And today we're going to talk about some of the developments in the labor market, um, the labor shortage, union and strike activity. And um, Lee has actually had an incredible background in advising unions. So I think this will be a really interesting conversation. So welcome, Lee. Thank you. Thank you, Samantha. Uh, It's nice to see you again. Yes, it's very nice to see you again. Um, It's very exciting. You were actually the first college professor that I met at Cornell. So this is really just a full circle moment for me. (laughs) Oh, God. Well, okay, I'll leave it at that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, okay, so I guess to start, would you want to tell the audience a little bit about your career in advising unions and sort of just generally what your experience is kind of up close and personal with them? Um, Yeah, you know, I thought about this. I think the best way to talk about my background is to say, um, that people who get connected to uh, working people's struggles um, kind of tend to one of two directions. Uh, one is that some people get very attracted to trying to get connected to leaders, uh, meaning leaders in Washington, D.C., leaders in the state where you might be uh, uh, located, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But what I learned uh, first from uh, my first experience when I was 21, driving taxi in a unionized uh, workforce in New York City, um, and then subsequently when I was probably about 26 or 27 in southern West Virginia, where I spent uh, 18 years representing rank-and-file coal miners, is that my interests are with working people with rank-and-file people and not particularly with leaders. And that has led me on a course for really um, more than 45 years of um, seeing the world through the eyes of working people themselves as opposed to uh, through various configurations at the national level or the state level or something like that. Um, And that sort of distinguishes I'm not saying so good, but it distinguishes me from a lot of others who are more concerned about sort of geopolitical this and geopolitical that and being connected to leaders. Um, I'm very happy to be connected to rank and file firefighters, rank and file coal miners, rank and file hospital workers, and rank and file teachers, which has been my work. 
So what kind of issues and at what moments do you advise the rank and file of these unions? Well, um, for five or six years when I was a little puppy in my 20s, um, I fought some of the big leaders in New York City on behalf of the rank and file taxi drivers because we felt that we were getting sold out by the most prominent leaders in New York City. Uh, I still feel super proud of that period. Um, when I went to Southern West Virginia, um, I only represented rank and file leaders and wildcat strikes and criminal situations and murder cases on picket lines on uh, criminal contempt in federal court for years and years and years uh, did I do that work and rarely have ever uh, represented either the higher up parts of the union or the international union in Washington. It was always the folks. Um, and then when I came to Cornell, um, I started uh, doing rank and file education all around the state, uh, teaching regular workers what would happen with NAFTA and those kind of developments in the 90s. And then um, in the latter part of the 90s, I represented a whole lot of different people that were subpoenaed before federal grand juries who were investigating the Teamsters election in the 90s. And then um, and then I started with the firefighters for the last 20 some years, uh, representing firefighters all across New York State on issues about health, safety, contracts, um, bargaining, uh, you name it. Uh, you know, I've, I've been involved in it. And I have also uh, written a history when rank and file teachers uh, overthrew the statewide president the first a contested election of significance in New York State in 19, excuse me, 2013. So each of those positionings of my legal skills or my educational skills have always been with the rank and file. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of our listeners, many of whom are union members themselves, will definitely appreciate hearing your take. And I think that I think that there's something um, just a theme that you're sort of bringing up already that is maybe underappreciated by people who are not necessarily close to unions or organizing, which is that there is a distinction between the rank and file union member and the union leadership and that those interests are not always aligned. And we're seeing how that is playing out with some of the recent strike activities. Yeah. Well, let's just take one little tiny example. Okay. If I may just uh, for your listeners to zero in, um, in, the uh, strike in Alabama, not the Amazon strike, which we may talk about at some point, but this is the UMWA strike, the, the biggest UMWA, UMWA strike in a long, long time um, uh, against a horrible, horrible uh, company just lying and not telling the truth to the, its workers, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, um, folks gave up a huge part of their pay uh, when the company hit economic downfall. I think it was 2015 and 2016. I, I can't remember, and they gave up some pension opportunities, et cetera. And they said, once we get better, we'll take care of you, quote unquote, which I have experienced a zillion times in Southern West Virginia in the 80s and 90s, and it's painful. Well, what happened was, is that when they got on their feet and they made $500 million in, I think it was 2018 or 2019, 
They stiffed them. They offered them a couple of nickels and a couple of dimes. Well, the union came in and negotiated the best deal, quote unquote, that they could. The international came in and negotiated. It was voted down 90% to 10. And those folks have been out since late winter this year, going on five, six, seven months at this point. That's an example of the difference between the leadership wanting to get those guys back to work. I understand. I always understood that from the 70s, too. Everybody in Washington wants to get the work rank and file back to work. I want them back to work, too. But the question is, how do you go back to work? Do you go back with your dignity? Do you go back with a, a, a decent change in your working conditions? And that's what is problematic right now, um, because more and more and more working people are doubting um, the proficiencies and the skill levels um, that are being negotiated on their behalfs, and they're rejecting um, things left and right. Right. I would. Do you have um, any thoughts on why the union leadership? is sort of maybe unintentionally aligning with corporate interests by pushing workers back to work before there's, you know, a deal that is really fully what they, they need. Or well, I, let me say this. First of all, um, unions are democratic institutions um, for the most part, although we fall short. I'm a, I'm a trade unionist and every vein, artery and part of my heart and wherever else that stuff's connected to. Um, but um, the union, um, especially at the higher levels, uh, wherever they might be, um, don't really live through what the rank and file lives through. And, and the rank and file um, can become angry. It can become bitter. Um, it can become, frankly, um, too tough to penetrate, even to the point of irrational, because they've been hurt, they've been humiliated. Like take the strikers in at Mercy Hospital, they're into the 23rd or 24th day in Buffalo. They've been humiliated, trying, watching men and women next to them die from coronavirus and, and being on the front line and short of staff and working extra shifts and not being sure when they're going to be able to go home to be with their family. And, and, and uh, the CWA who represents them, I'm sure, is as sensitive an organization as there can be. But it's very, very difficult. They want those folks back to work because it's dangerous when you're out that long because they've already started replacing them. They have 50, 75 replacements. They can make them permanent replacements to take their job. And holy mackerel. So there's lots of reasons why unions are worried when people go on strike if they can't solve the problem rather quickly, if, if you will. It's not because they are aligned with corporate interests. It's rather that the interests they have um, in terms of what they see as the best or, or, or the, the, uh, the best welfare, if you will, for their membership um, doesn't always align with the bitterness that strikers feel because of just not only the economic privations, but also the um, matters of dignity. 
Yeah, I mean, just so so you're speaking about a recent strike um, of healthcare workers in Buffalo who are basically yes, yes ma'am, yeah. yes, I was. So yeah. so they're basically, you know, they've had it. I mean, understandably, they've been working through COVID, um, and obviously, COVID has become very political. So that so that's just one of many recent strikes. Yes. Yes. What, what yes. would you say is overall it's driving this recent uptick in strike behavior? Well, I, I actually think there's a number of things. Um, there's a constant lingering. It's sort of like a mosquito buzzing around your ears and keeping you up all night kind of thing um, about staffing shortages, um, at least in healthcare. Um, the staffing shortages have, in better times, played out with uh, primarily women, occasionally men, um, in healthcare, uh, having to work extra when they don't want to, uh, meaning just being ordered to do that, uh, so to speak, uh, uh, forced or involuntary overtime, or um, other kinds of situations if they're non-union where they can just just say, stay here, stay here, stay here. And so some unions have fought uh, to get um, staffing ratios passed by state law. So uh, the nurse, different uh, healthcare organizations in California have succeeded with that. But even succeeding with that, there are ways to slip around that. So for example, um, in some uh, material that I sent you, uh, uh, Samantha, um, about Kaiser, that there's a lot of very angry healthcare workers at Kaiser because Kaiser is not honoring, they feel, they feel the state laws about the shortages and the ratios, et cetera. And they're also not uh, uh, being honorable with regard to how much money they can afford for um, additional help to the workers. So there's a dynamic uh, that spreads around called shortages. A second dynamic is that um, people actually were, I don't know the exact word because I'm not um, a doctor, a medical doctor or a psychiatrist, but just what I know about life, I just think there's tens of thousands or more of healthcare workers or any frontline workers that have been severely harmed uh, mentally by the COVID virus. Um, people like me would sit on my front porch and sometimes start crying to think about it. But I was protected. I'm privileged. I'm an old white guy in an academy and I can figure out ways to protect myself. Those millions of people could not. They had children at home. They had sick moms. They had sick aunts. They had sick husbands. They had sick wives. They had to go and take risks and then watch some of their friends die doing that. And when that happened, everybody said, oh, you are so wonderful. It's like firefighters and cops after 2001. Oh, thank you for picking up all that debris. But when by 2003 or 2004, when they're sick, psychologically or from lung diseases, people are saying, I remember that, but that was then, and we're not going to protect you now. And that's what they feel. They feel that. And that makes an individual person angry. And it also gives them resolve because they know what they did to 
protect America. And now America is not protecting them through the corporate situation. So I think that has a huge impact. And then the third thing is the tightness. Of, uh, you know, we haven't talked about that yet, but the, the general overall tightness in the labor market that is characterized by a number of different things, uh, ranging from the long term, separate from COVID, um, this stunning statistic that America has the least percentage of its men and women working between the ages of 35 or 40 and 60 of any industrialized country in the world. And people are saying, why? You know, that, that kind of thing. And then the short-term pressure in the labor market, which is that people are resigning and quitting their jobs in mass, you know, um, because of all kinds of differentiations that have been uh, triggered by uh, the, the COVID crisis. So you've got a lot of stuff moving around that we haven't had in the smorgasbord of the labor market and uh, working people's uh, existence for a long, long time. And that's why I think we're seeing, you know, the kind of convulsion that we are. Yeah, I mean, I do think that when a, an employee realizes that their their boss does not care whether they live or die, I do think that that really changes your calculus for what, you know, your your threshold for staying somewhere or, you know, you know, is that money important? Can I go somewhere else, especially now when there are so many other job openings because of people quitting? Hey, American Fever Dream listeners, I'm here to tell you that there is no reason to panic the next time you're searching for the perfect gift, because now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy is here to take the stress out of gifting so you can find the perfect item for anyone for any occasion. And it's easy. You just tap or click Gift Mode in your Etsy app or Etsy.com and then answer a few questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you a curated gift idea list based on hundreds of personas. Now it is simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a Mother's Day gift for the quilter or a birthday present for the vintage hunter, there is something for everyone on Etsy. Some of my favorite things to do are go to Etsy gift mode and then search absurd things like what kind of gifts do you have with Walter Cronkite on them? What kind of gifts do you have for dachshund owners? There's jewelry, ceramic, toys, board games, all kinds of fun stuff. A gifting moment is always right around the corner, whether it's a birthday, an anniversary, a holiday, or even just a day to say thank you. Gift mode on Etsy has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try gift mode on Etsy now. Today's episode of American Fever Dream is brought to you by Newly. Have you ever felt that fast fashion ick, but can't always afford the super high-end stuff? I have a solution for you. It's Newly. Newly has everything you need to bring your closet up to speed for the season without breaking the bank. Free your closet of impulse purchases and skip the buyer's remorse by renting instead. Newly is a subscription rental service, and for just $98 a month, you get your choice of any six styles. They also have inclusive sizing up to 5X, as well as petite and maternity. You get fast, free shipping and returns and professional cleaning and newly state-of-the-art laundering facility. No laundry for you to worry about. This is the best. You just put it back in your box, send it out, and before you know it, you've got your next one. And you always have the option to buy what you love for sometimes up to 75% off. I bought the Rachel Antonoff pasta puffer from them. I was obsessed with it, like everybody who tries it is, and it was completely sold out everywhere else. So I felt like I really, really had an in there. So thank you, Newly. 
Newly is an amazing value at $98 a month for any six styles. And right now you can get $20 off your first month of Newly when you sign up with the code FeverDream20. Just go to N-U-U-L-Y.com. That's Newly with two U's and enter the code FeverDream20 and sign up to get $20 off your first month. That's N-U-U-L-Y.com. Newly with two U's with code FeverDream20. Newly subscription clothing rental. Change your clothes. Just talking about leverage, because ultimately, that is what all this comes down to. And it's always felt like corporations have just endless leverage, and the individual worker essentially has none, which is why unions are set up. But do you think that that those factors and the overall increase in strike behavior sort of provides more leverage to workers in general? Or does that not actually matter unless there were to be something as large and seemingly impossible as a general strike? Well, I think leverage is always um, in motion. And the question is, is who is there, is there somebody that can steer that, um, you know, that kind of uh, mobile concept, which is really about power activated. You know, leverage is really just the same as power except activated, you know, like in motion. Um, And unions, I I think, both at the the national level and at the local level, um, meaning the leaders, not so much just the rank and file workers, see this as, holy mackerel, there's a lot of things um, aligning in a certain way that give us leverage. Um, so that's that's one piece of the dialectic, but the dialectic has a lot of different theses to it, meaning a lot of different arrows pointing in a lot of different directions before you get a resolve. Meaning, does that does leverage you know favor unions or does leverage continue to favor corporations? And um, so it seems that way that leverage is working that way. The tight labor market. Um, if you will, again, infuses the thinking of people that understand things like that, that this is getting better. They see when they drive down the street, McDonald's started at $13 an hour, and then they raised it to 15. And some places actually have a sign in front, come to work for us, $17 an hour, $18 an hour, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Plus other bonuses. They're, they're other really, bonuses. yeah, right. it's like right. bribery at this yeah. point. Yeah, yeah. Right. I don't know, enticement. You know, enticement. I'll leave that to your listeners to decide. But, but, but then on the other hand, in the manufacturing world, where um, the profitability and um, the worries about um, the supply chain lines and the logistics, where they're having trouble filling, getting all the stuff together, but they still need workers. Like I saw here in Ithaca, New York, I saw within... Um, a couple miles of each other, a sign in front of McDonald's, of, you know, about 17 bucks an hour or something like that. And then over at a decent um, manufacturing company, we're starting people off at $15 an hour. And that's, you know, by the way, I'm not sure there's a tougher job in America than working at McDonald's, frankly, especially for a manager who's got to cover for all the shortages and keep all those balls in the air, you know, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But there you have a manufacturing job that's only paying 15 bucks an hour. How is somebody going to go there versus McDonald's? I mean, it's crazy. It hasn't, there's a great deal of unsettled stuff in the pricing of the cost of labor right now. And um, that tends to favor, I think, 
working people and their interests. Now, without spending an enormous amount of time on that subject, let's just talk about the part that contradicts what I just said. Um, so if Adler's right that it seems like the leverage is on the side of working people and unions, why in the hell isn't that case settled at the mine workers with that $500 million and all that kind of stuff? That metallurgical coal, when steel is coming back, that, 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 mine, that, that set of mines in Alabama has coal that's not um, the kind that is used uh, to make electricity, but more to make steel. And steel is in a great shortage in America. So there's a great need for that coal and there's a great need for steel. Why aren't those leverage points successful, um, if you will? And, and again, Samantha, I'm going back to your point about the incredible power of capitalism and corporate um, um, well-being, if you will, financial well-being, in the midst of all this. By the way, with millions of people, not millions, but 700,000 people dying and you know millions affected by COVID, Corporate profits just keep going up and up and up, despite the shortages of the labor. Oh, somehow they're still making dough. You know, what's that all about? That's about power. That's about residual power. And that's about how tough this all is in the bigger question. Because you also look over, well, I mean, with Amazon being making, I mean, even Bezos's wealth went up. 50 or 70 billion dollars in the last year, let alone Amazon's wealth. And the Bessemer strike was crushing, you know. The Mercy strike is into the 24th day. The big hospital strike in Worcester, Massachusetts, that has the second or third biggest healthcare corp in maybe the world, but certainly in the United States, called Tenet, T-E-N-E-T, that's in its seventh month. And it hasn't been resolved. So, so these are things that um, I think people who are not just sort of, um, you know, wildly optimistic and, and hopeful about certain developments where workers' wages are going up, which I'm deeply grateful for, especially the fast food workers, you know. But but there's other pieces of this dialectic out there in the labor market and in the world that we must pay attention to. And this is all, I'm sorry for taking so long to get back to the question about leverage, but I'm trying to explain the ingredients or the, the various inputs um, that go into trying to um, uh, uh, critically examine leverage at this point. In other words, it goes, it's, it's pretty amazing in certain ways, but it doesn't go as far as a lot of people think it's going or want it to go because of the residual power of capital. Right. So on that note, do you think there, you know, people sort of murmur about a general strike. Do you think that there could really ever be one? And do you think that that would sort of be like the key to, I don't know, maybe breaking some of that residual power? Well, I think the residual power has been around for a long time, and I'm not sure that uh, even a general strike could fundamentally change um, the, the, the power and wealth of corporations. I don't think that is likely. I also 
think, um, again, and I hope I'm dead wrong about this, um, but in my lifetime, I have witnessed more disunity in the labor movement in terms of like the whole entire picture, if you will, mm-hmm. and unity. Um, right. And um, we, one of the times we've actually had some unity, and I'll, I'll, I'll identify a couple of times where we've had some unity. One time we had some unity um, after all the police and fire were killed in um, the World Trade Center towers. Um, but that unity was in sorrow and in anguish and in hurt and in pain. And it wasn't like activated to, quote, acquire power or if you go better position oneself for leverage, number one. Another time when a whole bunch of the labor movement came together was around the immigration rides in um, 2000, and I think 2005 and, and lesser in 2007, where we really galvanized huge numbers of working class people uh, to support um, uh, attempts to really modify and change uh, the immigration laws in America. And American workers were persuaded that it actually wasn't hurting them to have these uh, non-American folks in the midst. Um, and that vaporized, that, that reality vaporized as, as the right, as the failure of those things occurred. And then the right just harm, you know, just kept hammering. These people uh, from everywhere but here are killing your wages, are killing, you know, when we went into the Great Recession, um, that kind of nativism came out virulently and it's come out throughout this whole last decade with uh, uh, a lot of creepy Republicans repeating lies about all this stuff, you know. Um, so, you know, we're very, we've been damaged um, by that kind of talk and and polarized as a nation, which, you know, is a whole other separate question, you know, but, but that really makes it tough to have something like a national strike, I think. It's, it's um, the working class is split about this, you know. Um, so it's just hard, um, just hard. I, I don't think that that's going to be the solution. I think long-term organizing deep, deep, deep in communities is going to be a much better, although um, not as noticeable as or as exciting as Right. So that was sort of my next question. If a general strike wouldn't, you know, really affect that power structure long term, what would? But I do think that makes sense that real fundamentally, you know, organized workplaces um, where the union is aligned with the worker probably would, you know, be a more effective way of going about it. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. 
because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Another thing that you had mentioned when we were on the phone the other day is that the NLRA, the National Labor Relations Act, which protects the rights of workers to unionize, is really weak. Can you yes. ex- elaborate basically on that and what could potentially strengthen those rights? Yeah, um, the act when it was passed in 1935 was really, really, really important for working class folks. Um, I, when I even went to West Virginia in uh, 1974, I saw here and there, especially in African American coal miner families, um, I would see a picture of John F. Kennedy. I'd see a picture of Robert Kennedy. I'd see a picture of Dr. King. And I would see a picture of Franklin Roosevelt. And on occasion, I'd see a little old-fashioned um, flyer that said, "Your president, the president wants you to join a union. And that's what happened at that time in history. And union growth was mini work. And people who joined unions were safe. They actually had, uh, you know, they uh, the contracts, you know, the first contract after the Flint shutdown or sit down in 1937 was one line. All it said was General Motors recognizes the UAW as representing its workers. The, the, it was one sentence. The idea of putting in just cause for being fired didn't happen for another 15 years, but it wasn't necessary because workers were so mobilized and so had such class consciousness that if they tried to fire Sam, um, 30 people would surround the boss and say, get your hands off her. She's a good worker. She's staying here. You know, that kind of thing. And that was the way it was. It's nothing like that now. And so in many cases, it's very hard Um, for people to even see or feel the National Labor Relations Act at work. Um, And furthermore, in the 1947, uh, the act was amended to create much, much, sort of shift um, the power. It actually was in the original act that it was part of the national policy of the United States of America to allow people to organize into unions and bargain collectively. Instead, 12 years later after World War II with the anti-communism onrise and uh, fear of Russia, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, the country was marching to the right and they changed the National Labor Relations Act and pushed many things that had been off the table onto the table and they were all in the direction of corporate power. What subsequently happened over the next Well, 1953 was the height of private sector um, percentages in unions. It was, uh, I believe it was 33 or 35% in 1953. It's now 6%. Okay, so that's a 600% drop in 60 or 70 years. And a lot of that has to do with the way that elections are administered. And um, that there's so many ways that for example, let's just let's just take for example um, 
the Bessemer case. Okay, let me give you an example. Let's say that those workers voted to join the union. Okay, and then they all that means is that Amazon has to recognize as a matter of law um, that that union represents those workers. And then they sit down to try to get a contract. Well, if Amazon stiffs them and pretends like it's bargaining but gets nothing, does nothing, within one year, if there's no contract, Amazon can re- begin a counter campaign to get rid of the union. And the workers are sitting around saying, God, we took such a risk. We could have lost our job. We could have done this. And we voted for the union and nothing happened. And then they, they get a chance to vote the union out and quietly Amazon offers a little um, root beer float or, you know, something, and I don't mean to demean workers by saying that, but, you know, something to sweeten um, their reality. And the workers have had it hard for this year. Uncertainty and, you know, blah, 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 blah. And they might vote the union out, which has happened uh, at least 50% of the time in the last several years, last several decades. And, and so they figured out a strategy, plus there's a whole apparatus of corporate lawyers that do nothing but try to stop a union from getting in, A, or if they get in, stop from getting a first contract, and then the workers think that the union can't do anything to help them, and the workers go back to just their own lives. And that process has gone on for 50 years, and we've seen the results. And what we've seen also The reason why I think those are accurate observations is because in the public sector, meaning cops, firefighters, teachers, um, folks that pick up the uh, garbage, sanitation workers, um, folks that fix the roads, you know, all that kind of stuff. Those percentages, uh, the percent who are in unions, where um, the statutes don't allow that kind of um, creepy behavior by employers, um, that percentage has remained close to the 35% uh, that has been true for decades. Where there's not the statutory legal permission to break unions, which is inside the operational quality of the NLRA. And that's a stunning contrast. And to somebody like me, it's pretty convincing. <laughs> the NLRA just doesn't offer much for workers, you know? So what are some ways that that corporations will try to prevent unionization or get the union out once they were voted in that are technically legal? Let's take Bessemer. Let's take the Amazon folks, okay? Um, first of all, the number one thing they love to do, especially in the South, is to hide people on race lines. Um, so... They'll um, maybe they'll advance um, certain white folks to being supervisors, or if there's an overwhelming number of black folks in in the bargaining unit, which I think was true in Bessemer, they might um, um, push up into supervisory powers or supervisory positions um, a a number of uh, black folks and white folks felt that they were next in line or um, treat people differently at work, like discipline this race for that and discipline that race for something else that creates tension and makes white people think that the black folks are in cahoots with the Amazon management or makes the black folks 
feel that the white folks are in cahoots with management. So that's one thing they do. Another thing they do is they give preference to different groups of people um, on either overtime or work positions, like easier work positions to this group of people or that. Third thing they do is they have um, very sophisticated ways of understanding who are leaders, like in a non-union uh, factor or excuse me, warehouse, like um, like you have at um, uh, at Bessemer at Amazon, and they'll pick several people and they'll cultivate them in certain ways because they know they're going to bring ten or fifteen or twenty votes along with them. And, and they have different ways of cajoling those workers. Again, with better work situations, uh, with better overtime situations, um, maybe they'll get a raise, you know, in, in some form or fashion, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, another way um, is around um, discipline, you know, that they could choose to discipline different kinds of people for different reasons. Anything that causes division is their MO. And, um, and and also, the other thing that they're allowed to do, um, even though it's supposed to be illegal, but it seems like it's not illegal anymore, is to have what they call closed meetings. And they'll bring 20 people in and say, this is what's going to happen. If you vote for the union, we're closing this place down. You're going to be out of work. You're, you're, you, this, you know this is the best job anywhere around. Next year, we're going to expand this warehouse, and your uh, nieces and nephews will be able to come work here. But if you vote in the union, not only are we going to expand it, but we're going to shut this baby down, you know, or something like that. Or they might put it in veiled language so it's not against the rules, you know. And, and so they use intimidation, division, carrot and stick, etc. just old-fashioned ways of dividing people and have, making them have doubts. And then the last thing they do is, um, and this is easy, and the, by the way, there has never been, to my knowledge, a successful union campaign in any of the foreign uh, automaker plants uh, south of the Mason-Dixon line. And that's BMW, Mercedes, Nissan, um, Toyota, etc. Um, they never won. And what they have are big posters or they hand out literature talking about all the indictments of UAW uh, leaders. I don't know if you heard what happened last year, but uh, the United States indicted the top almost two tiers of leadership and the UAW for stealing millions of members' money from the education fund and using it to not purchase, but to rent um, very fashionable condos in Palm Springs to have parties there every weekend in the winter, um, $50, $100 cigars, fancy things. And the president, the vice president, all those people were indicted or in prison now. They said, this is what's going to happen to your money. So they have so many things that they can do. It's like a very large dysfunctional family run by a narcissistic patriarch. Well, yeah, yes, 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 yes. And plus you've got, you know, words on some of the unions. Now, certainly not all the unions are like that. And not all the UAW locals are like that. You know, but in the 
top levels in the automobile, I just think it's going to be another long period of time before there's any chance to organize automobile workers in the South. So, I mean, if you talk about a national strike, as long as there's cranking out <laughs> Nissans and Toyotas and uh, BMWs and Audis and Volkswagens and, you know, in the South, what's, it, what's the matter what's going on in Detroit, you know? I mean, of course it matters, but, but you know what I'm saying metaphorically, you know? Totally. Um, just to kind of close out as like our last question, we've been following the IATSE strike a lot on this podcast. And it seems that they may they have arrived at a deal, but it hasn't been voted on yet. What what do you think of that deal? Well, I, you know, I haven't seen all the particulars. You know, I've seen or heard or read um, that there were certain kinds of pay increases. There were uh, restrictions imposed on producers, et cetera, with regard to some of the staffing concerns that they had about excessive overtime, excessive work activities. Um, they structured in a greater dead period between um, when you're finished work on Tuesday and when you have to start on Wednesday. You know, they did those kind of things. And um, that with um, a decent wage increase may be sufficient, but lurking behind this, and um, I have to tell you that this is kind of silly, I guess, but uh, none of my uh, firefighter, uh, I love uh, the firefighters I represent around New York State, um, but no entity, no governmental entity will ever, and frankly, I don't think any private entity will ever, um, agree to an escalator clause for or a COLA for inflation. I mean, at this point in time in history, they just have too much power. And in the public sector, they just don't do stuff like that. But I got on my hands and knees and begged my guys downstate and said, don't sign this contract without the, there's three straight months of 5.3 or 5.4% inflation, you know, kind of thing. Um, and they said, we can't do anything about it. We we're just going to go through with it, you know, and, you know, and stuff like that. But I don't know. I see um, a lot of their uh, workers are very high paid. A lot of them are very high paid. I think they have different structural things inside their organization. But some people, some set designers um, make a very, very, very uh, fine living. And people who are more provisional or don't have a full, you know, sort of like legitimate trade inside set building and stuff like that, that are more like carrying in the material and stuff like that, um, know if they're going to pay attention to um, um, uh, inflation or not. But if anybody would, it would be the IOTSI workers, you know, and that could that could impact or influence the ratification vote. But frankly, um, because of the history of the union and because uh, for the most part, if the um, stress, um, if there is a structure to de-stress uh, the constant sea of work, um, that might be enough breathing room for the producers and the owners to get ratified and, and the union leadership to gain ratification. 
Well, that is very exciting. And we will definitely be updating you on that because we've been following that potential strike in particular. Thank you so much, Lee. This has been such an enlightening conversation and I really appreciate you taking the time. Oh yeah, it's my pleasure. Until the end of democracy, I'm Sammy Sage. And this has been the Betcha Sup Podcast. The Betcha Sup Podcast is produced by Amanda Duberman, Jorge Morales-Pico, and Sean Kilby. Editing by Jorge Morales-Pico. Social media by Amanda Duberman. Be sure to follow at Betches underscore Sup on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. And send us your emails to suppod at Betches.com. Betches.